If you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Matthew chapter 21, and we find ourselves at verse 28 this morning. Matthew 21 and verse 28. We're actually going to start reading the text this morning at verse 23, just to catch the context of what's happening here in this passage, but we begin our study at verse 28. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he said to the other son, uh, and he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your word um, your, your, your word is sufficient, your word is inerrant, we can trust it, and it, it instructs us on, on your will, on your, your person, that we might know you, it instructs us on your gospel, that we might see the way of salvation. And uh, Lord, we pray this morning that you would use your word, open our hearts, that we might respond appropriately to your message we pray this for your glory in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We covered the, the first portion of this last we met in this study. The chief priests, the elders, the, the scribes coming and challenging the Lord Jesus' authority to teach as he does. And, and of course, the emphasis there was on the fact that the only way he could possibly ever have that kind of authority was if they gave it to him which they had not done. And so, why does he assume that he can teach these people? And Jesus returns the challenge by asking one simple question. He puts it to them that if they would but answer this one question of his, that he would reciprocate and submit the answer to theirs. John the Baptist, what was the authority of his ministry? Was it from man? Was it from heaven? And this is a real problem for these. 
that because they flat out rejected the idea that John's ministry was from God in the least. But with such esteem that John was held in by the people, they feared that if they denied that John was a prophet, they would be stoned. And so, rather than offend the crowd listening, they play the ignorant and, and declare uncertainty towards John's authorial, uh, his uh, uh, authority's origin. Neglecting to answer Jesus' question in agreement with the promise that Jesus had made to answer their question, Jesus withholds response to that question as to where his authority had come from. Sort of. If we continue reading in our passage today, we actually see that Jesus does answer indirectly where his authority is come from. And, and by way of connection of, of John here as God's prophet, he, he, he shows that as John pointed to him, and John was from God, so too they can be certain that Jesus himself is from God. But he answers in such a way that only those who have ears to hear will recognize this answer. And Jesus speaks a parable to these men um, who he speaks a parable of two men, rather, who had a, a man who had two sons. Both of the sons are equally instructed, and, and we see the varied response in the two here. John Calvin writes this of this parable that Jesus tells, saying, "This conclusion shows what it is to object uh, 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 what, what is the object of the parable? When Christ prefer, uh, prefers to the scribes and priests those who were generally accounted uh, infamous and, and held in, in uh, uh, detestation, for he unmasks those hypocrites that they may no longer boast of being the ministers of God or hold out a pretended zeal of godliness. And I think this is a good summarization, really, of, of what it is that's happening here in this text. These are playing the part of, of great concern over the temple, uh, over the happenings of, of the Jewish religion. And Jesus, in their minds, shouldn't be teaching as he hasn't been ordained. And so, at least not by them, and so he should not then have this role that, that he has assumed for himself. Verse 28, what do you think? And so, really, Jesus is inviting these scribes, these chief priests, to put on their thinking caps, as it were, to, to, uh, to analyze the scenario that he lays before them. And now, again, this, this is the same conversation They've already rejected Jesus' question, refused to answer his question concerning John's, uh, the, the origin of John's uh, authority. He's speaking here to the very same topic, addressing the very same people. These, the most esteemed for their biblical positions and learning within Judaism. What do you think? A man had two sons. 
And he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? Simple parable. So this, this first young man, he's instructed by the father to go to the vineyard. It's not specifically stated what work he is to do in the vineyard. But obviously this young man knows what work needs to be done. Uh, but he refused initially, refusing the direct command of his father. It was, as Charles Spurgeon notes on this text, rude, rebellious, ungrateful, but it was hasty. And when a little interval had lapsed, a quiet reflection brought this wayward boy to a better mind. And afterwards, he repented and went. This was true repentance, Spurgeon says, for it led to practical obedience. He did not offer a verbal apology or make a promise of future good behavior. He did far better, for he went about his father's business without more ado. Now, we need to understand what the service in this particular text is pointing to. This work in the vineyard, in the parable, what is it that it references? In the explanation that Jesus gives us here in verse 32, we see that the point is in coming to Christ himself. The, the work in the vineyard here is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we know then that the Father in the parable is to be understood as God the Father, who has called uh, to enter the work of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that sound weird? Obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, is it, is it not, is that, obedience and gospel, are they not at odds with each other? Well, yes. If we're speaking of a, a work that a man must do in order to earn right standing before the Father, but the gospel declares that all who come to the Lord Jesus by faith are to be counted as righteous. Their sins imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness credited to their lives. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we read this, beginning at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the 
presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, the gospel is the, the, the truth of the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who alone can satisfy the, the debt that our sins have incurred and to reconcile us to a holy, righteous, perfectly just God. The preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ is that preaching of what it is that God has done, that sinful man can be saved. But that preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ is also accompanied by a command. Now, in in our day, it's usually not worded that way, is it? In our day, it's more normally worded that the gospel is preached including an invitation. And it is an invitation, but really, it's a command. It's a command of the Lord Himself. Now we saw, even as as Clay read this morning from Joshua chapter 7, we saw that God God instructed the people of Israel to, to, to come forward by tribe, by clan, by family, by man. Right? Why? Well, because someone had been disobedient to the Lord. Someone had, had, had disobeyed a direct command of the Lord. What if we were called to come forward by tribe, by clan, by man? What would be the result? Every one of us, every one of us would be found to be guilty for disobeying the command of God. But the gospel shows us that our God has come to save sinners. He's come to save sinners. And not like those people out there. Like these people right here. He's come to save sinners like us. I love, I love Paul's, uh, Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. And, and as, he, as he continues to lay it out there, it's like he's saying, listen, if you knew my life, you would recognize that if he can save me, he can save anybody. And this is our gospel. And, and that gospel is issued with a command. And the command is, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As this passage in Second uh, Thessalonians shows us, Rejection of that command will result in eternal punishment.
And so, so it is in our parable here. Jesus' picture here represents this first son commanded to enter the service of obedience to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, which at first he refuses. But in time, he comes to understand it better. He turns, he obeys this call to salvation. And it says that that he changed his mind and went. In, in the Greek here, this, a word very closely related to metanoia, almost always translated as repenting, a change of mind. But, but of such a change of mind, of such a change of thinking, that his desire, his will, and the action of his life are then consistent with that change of thinking. And this is what we see here. It's not only regret. And it's not only regret accompanied with remorse. But regret, remorse, accompanied by the action of going and obeying what was previously rejected. It is so sad that that so often today... Believers will fall for the idea that repentance is simply regret and confession. If the will and the action does not also change in keeping with that change of thinking, then it is not repentance. And that's what we see in this parable. This young man says, no, I won't go. But God comes and does a work in his heart And his mind changes. And as a result of that mind changing, he submits and goes and serves in this command to believe in Jesus Christ. So the first son rejected the gospel call, but later repented. Charles Spurgeon says this, Oh, that many who have hitherto refused to obey the gospel might now be changed in mind Hearken the voice of God and enter into His service. We see clearly in this parable that the son who said he would obey and then later rejected his father's will represents the chief priests and the elders that Jesus is actually speaking to on this occasion. Sure, they had built for themselves a reputation of serving God, but they had rejected the prophets. Those like the first son, those who had initially rejected the Lord's command and later come to repentance, well, they were just the sort of folks that, that these chief priests, these scribes, these elders, they held such disdain for the lot of them. They looked down their noses at those sinners And we see pictures of this throughout the Gospels, don't we? These who challenged Jesus. Jesus, why would you eat with such sinners? Why would you ever associate with such people? And the point is, they never would. They kept a safe distance from sinners. 
On the other hand, the son who initially refused his father's will and later repented represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were in rebellion to God and through repentance turned to the will of the Father in many instances through the preaching of John the Baptist, as we see in our text. One group made a profession of faith, but profession itself saves no one. It's possession of faith that saves. The one who cries, Lord, Lord, but does not do the will of the Father will only hear the words, depart from me. And again, the will of the Father there is the turning by repentance to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trusting in the very message that John the Baptist preached. John who pointed to Christ, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he called his hearers to gospel obedience. James Montgomery Boyce asks this question, followed by some commentary. He says, are you in that category? You cannot answer by saying that you have joined a church or affirmed the creeds, have a reputation as a good Christian, or even that you are a Christian worker or a minister. You can do all those things and still be disobedient to God, just as the religious leaders here were. They were active in all sorts of religious matters, but they did not believe on Jesus, and they were not working in God's vineyard. They were working in their own little vineyard, building their own reputations and erecting their own little kingdom. You can only answer that question properly if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and are now engaged in the specific work to which He has called you. Isn't that a great question? Are you in that category? It is essential, friends, that each of you assess your own lives and answer that question. It is the most important question, really, that we can ask ourselves. In fact, allow me to continue reading in Boyce's words. He says this. I think this is far too good not to share. He says, There is also the case of the other son. He said no to his father, but afterwards repented of his disobedience and went to the vineyard to work. We must not think that Jesus approved of everything about him. Jesus did not approve of his initial disobedience, but there was this good thing. Although he had defied his father at first, he later repented and did his father's will. I mention this early disobedience because people today, often young people, think that it is all right for them to go their way, their own way, as long as they go God's way at some later point. They want to have fun now and serve God later, when they are too old to be of much use, or when their opportunity of sound preparation are gone. Granted, it is far better to sin now and repent later than for them to sin now and not repent at all, 
But the best way is to come to Jesus early and serve him both early and late. It is best to give your entire life to his service. Besides, if you delay now, you have no guarantee that you will be able to come to Jesus later. You may, but sin takes its toll. And one of the things sin does is trap us so that we cannot get free even if we want to, And usually, we do not even want that freedom. If God is speaking to you and you are saying no, you should know that although it may be hard for you to say yes now, it will be even harder to say say it next time around, even assuming God speaks to you again. The only safe thing is to give prompt and sincere obedience to God's call now. I was serving in Buffalo Narrows, and I had the opportunity to preach for a, a period of about two years to a young man. I had an extended conversation with this young man about his coming and hearing the gospel message. We talked about many temptations in the world that, it, that are brought uh, to us to keep us from Christ, and I called him to give serious thought to where he stood with a a true reality of his need. And he answered me by saying, I always knew that one day I would go to church and, 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 and all of that. But I always thought it would be later in my life. There's always time later in my life to worry about the spiritual issues. Right now, he said, I just want to enjoy life. Well, he heard. The, the, the message was presented. The call was issued. That was 15 years ago. And to my knowledge, that young man, now in his mid-30s, is still living for the world and still rejecting God. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Boyce's words prove true. The longer we wait, the longer we intentionally side with sin and rebellion, the more challenging it becomes to turn our back on sin and walk with the Lord. J.C. Ryle writes this, Let it be a settled principle in our Christianity that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely willing to receive penitent sinners, it matters nothing what a man has, has been in time past. Does he repent? Does he come to Christ? Then old things are passed away and all things are become new. It matters nothing how high and self-confident a man's profession of religion may be. Does he really give up his sins? If not... His profession is abominable in God's sight, and he himself is still under the curse. Let us take courage ourselves. If we have been great sinners hitherto, only let us repent and believe in Christ, and there is hope. Let us encourage others to repent. Let us hold the door wide open to the very chief of sinners. Never will that word fail. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
Jesus tells us directly, uh, uh, this parable directly, he's speaking to these chief priests, these elders, these scribes, and, and his point here is to point out their own condition through this parable as they consider their, their standing before the Lord. Verse 31, Jesus asks this second question. Which of the two did the will of the Father? Easy enough, right? We can all see that answer. The scribes answer him, the first. So these have understood, they've been instructed, but now listen to Jesus' words. He said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Truly I say to you. That's a, uh, this is a serious instruction here. Matthew uses that formula to focus us in, to understand this is of great significance. The tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Can you imagine? Now clearly, Jesus is not teaching here that tax collectors and prostitutes are embraced in the kingdom apart from repentance and a turning in life. But what He is teaching is that these great sinners at the preaching of John seeing the reality of their own life, of their own sinfulness, their own need of mercy, these great sinners have turned to the Lord. They have received His gospel and thereby forgiveness and acceptance into the Lord's kingdom. Again, John Calvin writes, when he says that the publicans believed, he does not mean that they assented in words but that they sincerely embraced what they had heard. Hence, we infer that faith does not consist solely in a person's giving his assent to true doctrine, but that it embraces something greater and loftier that the hearer, renouncing himself, devotes his whole of his life to God. Now, of course, we know that we are not saved by devoting our whole selves to God. I mean, after all, who amongst us could claim to be wholly devoted to the Lord? Uh, no, we, we have so much further to go, don't we? I do. But the forgiveness... And, the, and the, the accepted sinner in gratitude to such a glorious heavenly Father returns the Father's love for us in willful submission and devotion to Him and to His will. And the greater the sinner, well, the greater the devotion, the greater the love. Return to God, the greater the life amended that takes place due to that love and devotion. 
Jesus here gives us a, a remarkable testimony to the high view of the preaching of the ministry, the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. To receive John's message was to receive the message of the Father Himself. And Jesus here equates rejecting John's message to rejecting Jesus' message. It's one and the same gospel. And so, speaking of John the Baptist, R.T. France writes this, The central importance of John's ministry is again underlined, even to the extent of declaring that people's response to John determines their entry to the kingdom of God, which was, after all, the burden of John's preaching, according to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. And since entering the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is already familiar to us as an idiom for ultimate salvation, John's significance then could hardly be more strongly endorsed. Sinner hearing John's message, they were cut to the heart. A conviction of sin took hold of their hearts And they cast themselves on the Lord by way of faith and repentance, seeing that the only way of salvation was the way of mercy. France again writes, John came to show people how to live according to God's will, and those who believed him repented and were baptized. They included especially the less respectable members of Jewish society for whom repentance was an obvious need, and perhaps for that reason his message was resisted by those who already considered themselves righteous. Friends, don't ever fall, don't ever allow yourself to fall for the idea that you are righteous in and of yourself. Don't ever allow yourself to fall into that idea. That is a very, very dangerous place Because in that place, it always ends up looking down on others and never looking up to see if there's mercy and grace availed for you. And that's not where we want to be. That's the place of hard-heartedness toward others deemed less deserving of honor and acceptance then you would see yourself as worthy of. Don't ever end up there. And sadly, that's our natural inclination, isn't it? Every one of us, before our salvation, every one of us were legalists. And if we're not really careful, we can allow that legalism to creep back into our lives. We don't want to end up there. Instead, allow the message of Jesus Christ to reveal to your own heart the greatness of your own sin and the immensity of your need of a Savior. As was stated in one of the testimonies last week, quoting Charles Spurgeon, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Or, as Spurgeon on another occasion stated, Let not your sense of sin make you think little of my Master. You are a great sinner, but He is a greater Savior. Do not say that you have matched Christ or overmatched Him. 
Come, Goliath sinner, the son of David can conquer thee or save thee yet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What a great Savior we have. If we will not see the greatness of sinfulness of self, we will never see the great need of Christ. May we pray that we see ourselves aright. Not see our neighbor, not, not see our co-worker, not see our husband or our wife, but that we see self right. For then we see how immediate and how desperate is our need of Christ. But this was not the case for these religious elites. They heard John's message and it moved them not. They saw the effect of John's message that it was having on the sinners. They, they professed faith. They went forward. They received John's baptism symbolizing the, the need of washing. But that moved these not. They saw the greatest of sinners in their eyes, having their lives totally transformed as a result of John's message and trusting in the Savior that John declared, and yet it moved them not. Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Calvin says of these, by saying that they were not moved, even by such an example, he presents an aggravated view of their malice, for it was an, an evidence of the lowest depravity, not even to follow the harlots and publicans. Jesus says that, that seeing the effects of John's ministry, his preaching, should have caused these to see the truth that God was the authority of John's ministry. And God was at work in John's ministry. Or maybe I should rephrase that and say, John was at work in God's ministry. And that ministry was a ministry of transforming lives. But these religious elites would not believe. They simply would not. As a result, tax collectors and prostitutes would go into the kingdom before these. Not that they are leading the way, but that they are getting in where these are not. They are in where these are being rejected. They are, in fact, taking these place in that kingdom and leaving these in the outer darkness. France states, These are the people whom the chief priests and the elders of the people would most despise and most heartily thank God that they were not like. They had no place in respectable religious uh, Jewish society, how much less in the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus speaks not only of their entering God's kingdom, but also going in there first, he is making no less radical pronouncement 
Then when he spoke of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of heaven to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom found themselves outside. Leon Morris writes, The whole manner of life of such people cut them off from the kind of religious observance that was the heart of religion for people like the Pharisees. Quite often, of course, these rejects from polite society lived up to the worst of their detractors' expectations for them. But this was not inevitable, as the number of such people who accepted Jesus' teaching showed. And now he says that these people go into the kingdom of God before you. This does not mean that ethical considerations do not apply and that the worst of sinners can keep on with the worst of their sins in the kingdom. No, it means that sinners, like official Judaism's outcasts, could respond to the message of the kingdom much more readily than sinners whose sins were cast in the conventional mode and and brought no rebuke from the religious establishment. You see, these lived in respectable sins. They were totally acceptable sins to the religious elite. Friends, we need to get real in examining self. Don't ever think to yourself that at least my sins are not like that. They're not like those people. At least I don't. Right? If you ever find yourself there, please realize you are engaged in the very worst that sin has to offer. The very sin of Satan himself, the sin of pride. Don't ever start thinking, hey, at least I'm doing pretty good. I hit the right check boxes and I avoid the wrong ones. No. See yourself correctly. A great sinner in need of a mighty Savior and cast yourself upon His mercy and continue to cast yourself upon His mercy. See yourself as fitting right in with the very worst of society. The worst of sinners. And from there, you will have the proper vantage point to assess your own need. The lowly have no room to look down on others. And so it is much easier then for their gaze to be upward, isn't it? Looking for where they might find mercy and grace. May that be true of each and every one of us. May we see this great Christ His salvation extended. And may we find in it hope as we reach out and receive this gospel by faith, by obedience to the gospel. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the clear, simple parable that Jesus lays before us here. Lord, help us to be men and women who examine ourselves, who ask ourselves that question, are we in this category? Are we in the category of your people who obey your gospel? Oh, we, we have gone astray. We have sinned. 
We are in need of forgiveness. We are in need of mercy. You have made that mercy available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, may we be people who obey that gospel, trusting in your Son, trusting in his finished work on the cross. Father, may you you have your way in our lives that through faith, through repentance, Father, you would cause us to be servants in your kingdom. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.